So this afternoon I want to uh, explore some the nature of how transformation occurs uh, through the practice of metta. I'll give a kind of a map that um, identifies a number of the different ways that uh, transformation occurs as we do this practice. Some of it may be evident, some of it not, some of it uh, takes a while, some of it doesn't. And I thought I'd begin by giving one account, which is relevant to our uh, location here, being near Silicon Valley. And this is also a bow to uh, Nikki's background in computer science. And this is a um, document that I have modified some and renamed, but that I found. It's called Installing Meta on the Human Computer. It, it takes the form of a dialogue between a customer and someone from tech support. Customer, I really need some help. After much consideration, I've decided to install Meta. Can you guide me through the process? Tech support, yes, I can help you. Are you ready to proceed? Customer, well, I'm not very technical, but I think I'm ready to install it now. What do I do? Tech support, the first step is to open your heart. Have you located your heart? <laughs> Customer, yes, I have, but there are several other programs running right now. <laughs> Is it okay to install while they are running? <laughs> Tech support, what programs are running? Let's see, I have pasthurt.exe, lowesteem.exe, grudge.exe, and resentment.exe running now. Tech support, no problem. Meta will gradually erase pasthurt.exe from your current operating system. It may remain in your permanent memory, <laughs> but it will no longer disrupt other programs. Meta will eventually overwrite lowesteem.exe with a module of its own called highesteem.exe. However, you have to completely turn off grudge.exe and resentment.exe these programs prevent Meta from being properly installed. Can you turn these off? I don't know how to turn them off. <laughs> Can you tell me how? Tech support, my pleasure. Go to your start menu and then invoke forgiveness.exe. Do this as many times as necessary until it's erased the programs you don't want. Customer, okay, now Meta has started installing itself automatically. Is that normal? <laughs> Tech support, yes. You should receive a message that says it will stay installed for the life of your heart. Did you see that message? Yes, I see it. Is it completely installed? Tech support, yes. But remember that you have only the base program. You need to con begin connecting to other hearts in order to get the upgrades. Customer, oops, I have an error message already. What should I do? What does the message say? It says, error 412, program not run on internal components. What does that mean? Tech support, don't worry, that's a common problem. It means that the meta program is set up to run on external hearts, but has not yet been run on your heart. It is one of those complicated programming things, but in non-technical terms, it means you have to meta your own machine before you can meta others. So what should I do? Can you pull down the directory called self-acceptance? Yes, I have it. Well, maybe I'll post this later. <laughs> okay. Excellent, you're getting good at this. Now click on the following files and then copy to them th to the my heart directory. Forgive self, 
uh, .doc, realizedworth.txt, acknowledge limitations.doc, and work through implicit bias.txt. The system will override any conflicting files and begin patching any faulty programming. Also, you need to delete selfcriticism.exe. From all directories, and then empty your recycle bin afterwards to make sure it's completely gone and never comes back. <laughs> Got it. My heart is filling up with new files. Smile.mp3 <laughs> is playing on my monitor right now, and it shows that peace.exe and contentment.exe are copying themselves all over my heart. Is this normal? Uh, tech support, sometimes. For others, it takes a while, but eventually everything gets downloaded at the proper time. So Meta is now installed and running. You should be able to handle it from here. So it's both that simple and not so simple. <laughs> Right, that the practice of metta is quite powerful. And yet it's also very simple. I mean, as I said two days ago, remember that two days ago? <laughs> how many think, again, how many think two days ago was actually seven days ago? <laughs> it, feel, it feels like that. So that so there's something very simple about metta it's permitting us to respond moment to moment with the wise and kind heart. And that's very, very simple. And there's a way in which the teachings are that we're learning to respond from a very basic capacity of kindness and warmth. But that for all sorts of reasons of conditioning and personal and cultural history, that capacity gets covered over at times. It gets limited. And in many ways, we're trying simply to uncover this very, very natural capacity so it's there more. And we're doing that through a kind of very simple training of letting us moment by moment incline towards warmth and kindness and goodwill. And remember, remembering that this is so much an intention practice, again, very, very crucial. We're not trying to manufacture metta or force it or fabricate it, you know, as Nikki said, that in many ways we are simply knocking on the door, inclining towards metta. And we can, in a sense, have faith that there'll be a response because metta, again, according to the sages, according to our teachers, is a very basic quality of who we are. We're not making it, developing it. We're really, in a, in a sense, more uncovering it and seeing what stands in the way. There's this very beautiful, simple quality of warmth, kindness, goodwill, a whole range of qualities. In English, we speak about love. This is from Mark Twain. Kindness is the language that the blind can see and the deaf can hear. In fact, I, I really felt that my father uh, began to go blind at a fairly young age, probably when he was still um, maybe 40 years old, early 40s. Probably he was um, a biochemist, and it was probably from improperly supervised experiments uh, run by the government, which he never really expressed resentment about. But I found that as he actually could see less, the kindness got greater. It was really pretty remarkable to, to notice that. 
And people could feel that. He could really relate to people. Can you imagine all the biases and judgments and so forth, which comes with vision? And if you were actually relating to people without so much of that, I think that's the way it was working for him. It's very interesting when you reflect on it. It's this very beautiful, simple quality. And of course, it's there in virtually all spiritual traditions. You know, we have this invocation to kindness and love, however it gets translated. So we're in a sense um, here for a week cultivating this very, very basic quality and taking, in a sense, this journey which is taken and has been taken by so many human beings. This journey to uh, open the heart, to be able to cultivate that sense of kindness towards oneself, towards others. This is from the uh, Jewish mystical tradition, the Kabbalah. First, it quotes from the Psalms. The world shall be built on love. And then it says, by this, the world endures by love. Many of you probably know this from the first Corinthians, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, love never fails. So again, we're undergoing a very, very ancient, simple journey. This is from the Islamic tradition. This is a, one of the uh, sayings of the prophet. You will not enter paradise unless you believe, and you will not believe unless you love each other. Should I direct you to something that if you constantly did it, you would love each other? Spread the greetings of peace among you. And very contemporary version from uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We just had the uh, anniversary of his uh, death a few days ago. When I speak of love, I am not speaking of some sentimental and weak response. I'm speaking of that force, which all of the great religions have seen as the supreme unifying principle of life. And yet we practice here and there are challenges to having that quality of kindness and warmth, warmth come out. And probably most of us have recognized certain challenges, very obvious ones. A lot of them are the same challenges we have with mindfulness practice. So one of them is we get distracted. We go to the past and future, our mind goes in different places. Has anyone been distracted in the last two days? It's about, about half. <laughs> okay. The, okay, the half who did not raise your hands, <laughs> maybe I will stop my talk, you will come up here and start teaching. <laughs> okay. Sometimes I ask, uh, Sometimes I ask, uh, I, I like to ask questions sometimes. Sometimes I ask a question, how many of you will die? I'm not going to ask that. <laughs> uh, ask, how many of you will die? And um, uh, a significant peop number of people do not raise their hands. <laughs> 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 so, 
So we have distraction at times. We have uh, sleepiness at times. Very natural when we come to retreat. How many of you, now I'm not, I'm not gonna, <laughs> gonna test, but how many of you have had some sleepiness in a significant way? Okay, now more hands going up. Okay, there's restlessness, right? How many of you have had some restlessness? Just staying with the same phrases all the time. Can't even change them each hour, you know, so. Or um, how many of you have, have felt sometimes just challenging to access the heart for whatever reason, maybe conditioning, past wounds, current challenges or pain surfacing. Sometimes there's reactivity. We're just uh, upset, agitated, whatever. How many have seen some reactivity, not liking what's happening at certain times? And then there's also confusion or even doubt. How many of you have doubted and wondered whether this was a good choice to come here? <laughs> right, and these are all natural. You know, many of you recognize these, uh, some of them, not, not all of them, are forms of what we sometimes call the difficult energy, sometimes translated as the so-called hindrances that make it hard just to be present, to do the practice. And they're very natural. And in a way, uh, a lot of what we learn is learning how to be with those, uh, with those uh, challenging energies. So I want to, in part, look at how to work with those challenges by talking about the way that transformation occurs in metta. I'm gonna talk about maybe, maybe five different areas uh, by which we uh, grow and develop with metta. One of them is that we develop in concentration in steadiness of mind. A second is that we learn more and more to lead with our hearts, to let our, to have our hearts be more present at, right at the forefront of our awareness. We learn to lead with our hearts. Thirdly, we see what gets in the way of the kind heart and we engage in a process of what we might call, what, what Nikki called, uh, purification. It's a huge part of the metta practice. Um, we see what gets in the way, stands in the way of that easy expression of kindness, of goodwill. A fourth aspect is that we increasingly find that we can connect our hearts with our wisdom, with our mindfulness and with our, with our bodies. So we, we increasingly integrate the different parts of our being and metta plays a big role for many of us, especially if we are um, sometimes more inclined towards the mind aspect or the thinking aspect or in, in practice towards the wisdom aspect, which is maybe the case for many of us. It was the case for, for me. And then lastly, we, with metta practice, we increasingly touch our depths. So we develop in concentration, we learn to lead with our hearts, we engage in purification, <clears throat> we integrate the different parts of ourselves, and we touch our depths. Sounds good. <laughs> Is that what I was doing? <laughs> right? So. Truly, this is the process we're in. It, we, we don't always connect with that and it's not always at all or even most of the time a linear path. But this is the kind of exploration that we are in, really centered around the cultivation of kindness. There's a um, passage that I heard from, uh, some of you know Houston Smith. How many, how many of you know his work? Houston Smith, this was a great, he died just, uh, a year and a half ago at the age of 94, I think, 94, 95. And he was one of my mentors, actually. And he was one of the great interpreters of the world religions and wrote, the, wrote some very, you know, probably the books that have been read by the most people. Originally, I think 1958, called The Religions of Man. And then it got, of course, retitled <laughs> uh, as, I think, The World's Religions. And a uh, beautiful man, you, know, you can find him on YouTube. <laughs> and 
uh, he, you know, very famously, he had a series of dialogues with Bill Moyers on PBS around 20 years ago, which, is, which you can find on YouTube, very beautiful. And he told a story of meeting with Aldous Huxley, the great writer and also interpreter of spiritual traditions. And, you know, he, he asked them, um, he asked them whether, you know, that he was at the end of his life and he asked some insight. And he, his answer was, you know, it's embarrassing after all these years. I'm asked so often about the most profound questions. My answer is try to be a little kinder. Right? Try to be a little kinder. I always think of a, a close friend of mine who has on her answering machine, you know, leave your message and remember, be kinder to yourself than you think you need to be. <laughs> so first, uh, with metta, we develop uh, samadhi, which is the word that we uh, have in the original language that we translate typically as concentration. And uh, we, know, we know that we are essentially repeating the same phrases over and over again. And this is actually a form of samadhi practice. Now I and many of us don't like so much the word concentration because it has connotations for many of us of straining, of and of, of um, sometimes unskillful effort. And so sometimes uh, people like to give other translations rather than concentration. We can talk sometimes about composure or the unification of the mind and heart and so forth. And that, that can be useful uh, if concentration makes you think of pushing and straining. That's not so useful because we don't want really that kind of energy with the metta. It's really we have this uh, balance of being persistent but also being relaxed. And actually the key to samadhi practice is uh, it's a kind of persistent relaxation, something like that. And relaxation is very, very key. Many of you know this from your practice, from ways of, uh, of finding that the, the straining and the over-efforting doesn't really work well. And many of us have tried that. Anyone tried that one? I have. <laughs> Richard Shankman, who uh, I think teaches here some, doesn't he? And he, he wrote the, a well-known book just called Samadhi. And he has a nice phrase. He says that Samadhi is unifying the mind, I would add the heart, in steady, undistracted awareness. And of course, this is a way of addressing the uh, challenge of distraction. That as we develop with our metta practice and develop more in Samadhi, we find ourselves less distracted. We're more able to stay with the phrases. We can, we can work with the phrases. And the beautiful aspect of, of this is, one of the beautiful aspects is they have found from research that samadhi actually, in a way, is a learned capacity. Meaning that when you develop it significantly, the next time you practice, you don't go back to square one. It actually can, a certain level can stay with you, if you especially if you keep the practice going. And so uh, I, I know that certainly from my practice that, that there, if you stay with the practice, the level of uh, samadhi can develop over the months and years. And so you're more able just to stay with whatever is arising in our mindfulness practice or stay with the metta phrases. From the uh, 19th century, from the uh, Russian Orthodox tradition, a teacher named Theophane, he said, dispersal of attention diminishes warmth. When we're distracted, we don't have as much access to the heart. Dispersal of attention diminishes warmth. And so with our meta practice, we're doing one thing and continually coming back to it. Now that can result sometimes in some restlessness or some challenges, 
But there's also something very beautiful and even freeing. Do you sometimes find it freeing? Have you found it freeing to just be with one thing? You know what to do, right? I mean, sometimes we may have to be wise and discerning on how to respond to some challenge with metta. But in terms of knowing what to do, you've got the basic instructions, right? You know what to do. And there's something that, especially when we get into it, is a tremendous relief. Have you found something like that? It can be very relaxing. There's a nice line from the philosopher Kierkegaard where he says, purity of heart is to will one thing. There's something very beautiful about that process. And that's really what we do with, with samadhi practice. We just keep coming back. And, um, you know, as I mentioned, I think in, um, maybe I think it was in the Q&A yesterday, the attitude that we have towards thoughts and things which take us away just for a little while is that we just notice them and then we come back to the metaphrases. We don't have to have the same dimension of mindfulness where we note this, where we stay with something. If something uh, just comes like a thought, stays for a little while, we just can immediately notice it and return to the metta. The guideline is that's only with something which really lasts quite a while, which lasts a long time. You know, it could be a few minutes or is, has some degree of intensity. You know, I, I gave the example, I think yesterday, of sometimes when we are on a retreat, especially a meta retreat, maybe there's been some loss in the past and there might be grief there some, and it can surface. Right, or, or something unresolved can surface and sometimes is there in a strong way and lasts. And if that's the case, we would uh, maybe do some mindfulness practice or some compassion practice to hold ourselves, for example, with something like grief, right? If it really lasts for a while. So, but if it's just there for a short while, we notice it and we come back to the metta. There's something similar in that in terms of our posture, we don't have to simply sit with a lot of uh, physical discomfort because that will actually distract us from the metta. With mindfulness, some, sometimes the instructions are just be with that physical discomfort. With metta, we're liberated some from that. <laughs> with metta practice, because we want to keep staying with it, something which distracts us in a major way uh, and I'm differentiating that some from something like grief, but with something like physical discomfort, it's appropriate to stand up, to shift the posture when it becomes quite distracting. So that's, that's an important guideline. And so we really can, can stay with the metta uh, more and more. And so just a few sort of suggestions for how to work with the samadhi dimension of metta. And this is true, I think, for other, other ways of cultivating samadhi. Um, just have a kind of patience, and again, we do this with mindfulness, where you keep coming back. You keep coming back, watch any commentary about, oh, I'm really distracted or judging, just keep coming back in a relaxed way. That's one, one suggestion. Look for the balance between what we might call the active dimension of effort, which is really saying the phrases, keeping on coming back. And there also is a relaxed and receptive aspect to coming back. And just ask yourself sometimes, um, you know, where am I in terms of balancing, in terms of I putting, am I putting out enough active effort? Or am I putting out a little bit too much so I need to just relax a little bit more, hold things a little less tightly? And asking that question is very, very useful. And through that, we also develop our own discernment or wisdom because eventually, you know, a good teacher, as soon as possible, makes oneself irrelevant. Or another way of saying it, you become your own teachers increasingly. 
And so you become able to say, okay, how's my balance of more active effort and more relaxation? And you keep on asking that and you become your own teacher. And so actually we don't, I, I would, maybe that's not quite right to say we make ourselves irrelevant, but we turn ourselves into, uh, from the, taking the teacher role to being more of a friends in the community. That's really the direction. And I think it's a nice, it's a nice vision. I think in the West sometimes we fetishize teachers, you know, and spiritual teachers. In the, you know, I think in the Asian cultures of Buddhism, one's primary identity is as a practitioner. And I think there are elements here that I find, which I find refreshing, that also support that understanding. That when I'm not in this teaching role, I'm sitting on the side practicing, right? And really that identity is that of a practitioner. That's primary, really. And then we all, in many ways, help others. We do it in different ways, and some do it as, as teachers. And so there are elements here which really support that understanding, which I think is helpful. I could say more about that teacher role. We, we've had some discussions, you know. As we practice more, the phrases can interestingly start to become more automatic. And they are happening and increasingly our attention can be on the feeling of warmth and metta. And it can sometimes have energy in the heart. And we still can be saying the phrases, but they're a little bit beneath the surface of uh, our, what, how should I say, our discursive consciousness. That some of you may find that as, we pract as you practice more, that the repetition of phrases is still there, but it almost shifts. I mean, I, I, I don't know if people have analyzed this in terms of the brain, but it almost sh seems to shift from one level of the mind to another. It's very interesting. I, I've experienced that the most in doing some long meta retreats where the uh, saying of the phrases continues, but it's almost like, uh, what? It's almost like saying a mantra where, you've spin where you just have said it so much that it's happening it's effortless and it's uh, still helpful, but it's, it's moved from the effortful part of mind here, let me, and the almost conscious part of mind to something more, more automatic. Very interesting in that way. And increasingly as that happens, more the quality of the warmth comes in. And we'll talk about that. So I'll leave some instructions tomorrow, which help us to connect further with that uh, energy in actually in, in the heart area. Metta develops in a mysterious way. It's not linear. Have you, you've seen that, right? It's not linear. And it's, it's also mysterious that one can be, this is a reason to keep on coming back, that one can be practicing metta and can sometimes feel distracted, not there at all. And you say, that's oh, not working. I should just have a cup of tea and relax. Sometimes you'll find you can be really distracted. You stay with metta and 15 minutes later, boop, it's right there in a powerful way. It's mysterious how things work. And I had, a, I had an experience very much like what Nikki mentioned in terms of Sharon Salzberg. The first time that I did a week of metta, it was before there were actually metta retreats. And I didn't have much instruction. I kind of did it on my own. And I didn't seem to have significant results. <laughs> but I was, I was, I was, I, I didn't care. I was just doing it and interested, exciting. You know, but I was basically, you know, to the extent that I was making commentary, I was saying, maybe meta's not for me, and so forth. And then, you know, one morning, I wasn't even doing the formal meta practice. I was having breakfast, and I was just, I think I was just walking, and all of a sudden, out of the blue, I heard my mind say, I love you. <laughs> just out of nowhere. 
said, hmm, maybe there is something to it. <laughs> you know, and I, I was very touched. <laughs> very, so, the, these things, so metta is mysterious, right? How the heart opens, closes, it's mysterious stuff, people. And, you know, and so it's um, just keep with it, right? And you don't know, you don't know how things are working. Right? It's really, it's really something, right? Maybe just one other thing about, uh, maybe one or two other things about uh, developing samadhi. Sometimes when, you, when we're having repetitive thoughts or your mind's just going to something, you know, going to some, maybe some unresolved issue. One thing I should say, does anyone have a major unresolved issue? <laughs> okay. My suggestion, the strong suggestion, is that you tell yourself, my major unresolved issue is really important. And so is meta practice. <laughs> and what I will do is the last morning of the retreat, maybe after breakfast, I will give some attention to my major unresolved issue. And I will give good quality attention before I'm thinking about what comes next when I'm still pretty quiet, relatively quiet. And I will do it in the way that works for me. Maybe I take notes, write in a journal, take a walk, and give really good quality attention. But that I will tell myself, we're going to do it that way. And I will refrain from just going there over and over again during the course of the retreat. That can be a very skillful way I do actually, even without major unresolved issues, I do something like that at the end of every retreat. I try to just see what comes next. But we know how that can really invade a retreat, right? And it's not so helpful. But on the other hand, we have to tell ourselves it is really important to give high quality attention to working with that issue. Of course, you'll have insights and things come up, but it can be really helpful to tell yourselves when something comes up, not now, later, right? Later we'll deal with this. And that can be really, really skillful. And of course, you'll, you'll deepen in your metta. And you may get a better response to the question if you do it that way. So it's a strong suggestion. A second aspect of metta that's very beautiful is that we learn to lead with our hearts. That's one way to say it, that for many of us, our initial way of living wasn't necessarily to lead with our hearts. That wasn't for me. You know, partly raised as a boy and a man and partly being a student, I was um, raised to lead with my analytical problem-solving mind, <laughs> right? And was told that I was pretty good at it. That's probably true for many of us, right? Some version of that. And that's certainly valuable, but there was a way that, I think partly because of social conditioning, I didn't have so much access to my heart, even though I knew that I had a good heart and a very, kind of a tender heart, you know, that uh, um, I knew that because I used to sometimes cry at movies when I was like a teenager. And other boys didn't always do that. So I was told that, you know, um, I, the girls liked it. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so, um, so I knew that, but uh, it wasn't so easy to access, you know, except with sentimental movies and so forth. And, and so part of my own journey, probably like many of us, was to find more access to the heart and to learn how to be able to have the heart be there in a way that I, I in a sense, I could lead with it. You know, I, I think of, uh, some of you know Julia Butterfly Hill who sat in the Redwood tree and what was it, uh, was it Humboldt County in, in the north to save, th save a Redwood tree called Luna. And she, she had a, beautiful practice of always asking, 
is my action coming out of love? And she would ask that before every action. It's totally the spirit of metta. It's leading with the heart, right? And so with metta, we are just continually inclining towards the kind heart moment to moment. That's what we're doing. We're training. This is a, a very intensive training. We're just doing that in a very simple way over and over again. And over time, we open in that way. We become more able. And I, I have personally found that metta was a really crucial training for me. And when I first started uh, doing the retreats after that first one of mine, which was a while later, because like I said, they weren't offered for a while. Uh, it was almost all insight meditation retreats, I think until about 20 years ago. Um, and I found that it really helped tremendously in having my heart be more accessible. Very, sim very simple practice. And you know, as we've said from time to time, metta is really uh, amenable to being uh, brought into the flow of daily life in all sorts of ways. You know, in being with others, in driving, any of you in the helping professions, you know, metta can really uh, go very easily into those kind of uh, activities. Very, very beautiful. And so we can, we can learn to, we can learn to do that. We can learn to be more present in our hearts so that it's there increasingly in every moment, in every interaction. And it's important to say that learning to lead with our hearts really means the full range of expressions of the heart. That I've been interested in understanding better how do we have metta in difficult situations. Sometimes I've thought of much like there being tough love, what does tough metta look like, <laughs> right? And what does, what does metta look like when there's a conflict or when there's a difficulty? Not always so easy, but there are a number of ways that we can develop it. I think it's a really interesting aspect of practice. How do you bring the spirit of metta in when there are difficulties? And we'll get to this in the sequence of our retreat. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be with, uh, uh, in a few days, with uh, a being who, Nikki and I have talked about this, we'll call the one whom we think is difficult, <laughs> right? And, that, and we'll get to that, and there, just in that phrase, you can see there are a few uh, understandings expressed, right? right. Uh, but it's really, being, uh, being very well developed in metta doesn't mean that we're nicey-nice. And that, you know, the metta, and if you read the, the uh, text of the Buddha, you see that he was often very, you know, presumably coming out of kindness and compassion, but sometimes very forceful, very strong, telling people things that they didn't want to hear for their own benefit, presumably. And so that's part of metta, that's part of leading with the heart, is being able to go into challenging situations without losing the heart. Not easy, right? You know, in difficult situations, often we might have a sense of needing to defend ourselves or do this or that, and often the heart goes, goes out the door, right? So how do we do that? A third aspect is that we develop uh, in metta through a process of purification. And this is a really crucial part of our practice. We, we can see this, that we come up against that which is in the way of metta. We come up against all sorts of things. And the purification can be that which we somehow haven't had time or space to work with. Maybe something like grief can be there. Grief of different kinds, you know, grief maybe related to losses, but there also sometimes can be a grief as we engage in the awakening process. You know, there's a kind of grief that we realize that at times in our past, often a lot of the time, we've been more closed or our hearts haven't been there. And there can be a grief that's there about how I've lived my life. We wanna be really careful with that to honor the grief, but be careful that it doesn't turn into judgment into being judgmental about ourselves. 
Sometimes as we awaken, we criticize ourselves unduly for how much we were asleep. Watch out for that. You know? So grief is one thing, grief is healthy, but when it gets turned into uh, being judgmental of ourselves or maybe, maybe others, that's not so skillful. So watch out, watch out for that. That's part of the purification process. Also just the process by which we come on retreat and there, there's something that, again, maybe hasn't been processed. Uh, could be grief, could be some challenges in whatever, in work or relationship and so forth. And sometimes those are waiting for people, you know, as we come on any kind of retreat, but especially metta. And we can, we can see that. We may encounter fear, we may encounter um, self-judgment. <clears throat> that's a big one. That's a big one in our culture, right? The, the self-judgment. I, I remember, uh, let's see, I remember, I remember uh, being with the Dalai Lama <clears throat> a long time ago, his first trip to the U.S. And <clears throat> he was um, taking Q&A through cards and and one person had written on a card, I don't think I deserve love. I don't think I told the story, did I? No. I taught on Saturday, right before coming here. So I, I told some stories. And I think I, I told it on Saturday. That's it. Okay. And he was, uh, he, he got one a person a, uh, said on the card, I don't think I deserve love. Please comment. And he was really confused. He had not encountered uh, what we might call Western self-hatred, right? And um, they have their own issues, <laughs> but other ones, right? And he um, went back and forth to the translator in Tibetan. He has pretty good English. He went back and forth, and finally, after three or four minutes, it was a really long time to just develop a, a response to a question for a da Dalai Lama usually, he just blurted out, you're wrong. <laughs> That's all he said. <laughs> and later he said that he was really confused by the self-hatred. He had not encountered it before. And he said, um, later he said, he took two years to try to understand it better, talking with Western psychologists, and he got a better understanding of it, and a better understanding of the Western culture. It's very strong in Western culture, being judgmental towards oneself. You know, it's something I'm, I'm actually working on a book now called Transforming the Judgmental Mind. So it's something I've worked with people for about 15 years with groups and with individuals, retreats and so forth. And it's a very strong energy. And it's particularly tricky because um, how, how I've come to define the judgmental mind is, is that it's a mix often of seeing something clearly, often a noticing or a discernment linked with reactivity. That's kind of, you know, so I may notice, uh, <clears throat> you know, I'm often late or something, right? And that in itself could be the basis for learning, for improving, so to speak. But we connect that with being really, really reactive, right? And I get really hard on myself. So I can notice something about myself. If I'm judgmental of others, I can notice something quite important. We can see it's really easy easily with political judgments. You know, we can see some, something about injustice, let's say. We can see it really easily, but then if we get judgmental about something that we notice, that can poison things. It's kind of the occupational hazard of activists to get into a judgmental, demonizing state, right? <coughs> so if that's uh, accurate, that there's some noticing as well as some reactivity, to me it makes clear what's necessary and also why the judgmental mind is so hard because it also often comes with some degree of truth and the truth hooks us. The judgmental mind says, I've got some truth on you and you say, you do. And the judgmental mind, because it has some truth, it says, whatever I say or do goes which is, um, of course, forgetting 
the reactivity, the pushing away especially. And so the way we work in the long run with a judgmental mind is to somehow transform the reactivity and use the noticing for the purposes of compassionate response. You know, like noticing, oh, I'm, some t- I'm often late. That could be the basis for learning, but it could also be the basis for beating ourselves up. And so maybe I'll say more about that um, in another, you know, later in the retreat, because it's a really important area and very, that's going to have some water. <laughs> I got really excited about the judgmental mind. <laughs> So we go through this, we go through this purification process. <clears throat> you know, we may, we, may, we may notice the judgmental mind. When I work with people with the judgmental mind, the two main tools that we start with are being mindful of when the judgmental mind is there, just noticing it. So you can, if it's there a lot for you, you can actually name it, judgment, judgment, or something like that. And what's really important also, just for clarity's sake, is to know that in English we often use the word judgment without meaning judgmental. It's confusing. So we can talk about an artistic judgment, the judgment of the engineers. And so I'm using here judgment in the sense of being judgmental. So the, the, not, the, the judgment without being judgmental is simply a noticing or a discernment. You know, like as a teacher, it's important for me to notice things about people I work with, right? If I'm judgmental, if I add the reactivity to it, it poisons the teaching, right? Okay, so notice the expressions of the judgmental mind, just notice them. If you're noticing them, be careful about the judgmental mind saying how many judgments there are (laughs) and count that as being the judgmental mind too. (laughs) Because if you start noticing it, you'll notice it a lot. So be careful with that. So first the mindfulness and then the heart practices, the metta. Metta is a tremendous way to work with the judgmental mind to develop the heart more. You know, and when we do retreats on the judgmental mind, we work with uh, seven heart practices. Metta, compassion, joy, equanimity, forgiveness, gratitude, and empathy. It's a great set. And we'll be bringing some of those in later in the retreat, especially forgiveness and maybe empathy at the end, we'll see. <coughs> so we, we work with what's there, which w- with what stands in the way. You know, all sorts of things may, may come up. You know, we may, we may find when we're doing metta towards someone, maybe, we, maybe our benefactor, dear friend, seems to have it together. And we may find envy comes up or jealousy comes up. You know, why should I give metta to you? <laughs> why not to me? So, so much comes up, you know. My experience in working with metta retreats is they're actually emotionally, in terms of material that comes up, they're more volatile than mindfulness retreats, uh, especially in the dreams. Anyone had wild dreams? Okay, it happens, right? It's normal. I've had sometimes people come talk to me in the morning and say, last night I was an axe murderer. Is this my true nature? (laughs) I say, no, normal. Just keep with the practice. (laughs) So if that happens, don't worry, but just keep going. But stuff comes up. It can be volatile. I'll be a little light with the last two points and, 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 and then finish. Mm. As we do metta, especially as I mentioned for someone like me, who was a little more developed in the cognitive before doing the metta, that there's a kind of balancing of the heart and mind, a kind of integration of the different parts of ourselves. And for many of us, our practice may have taken us more into mindfulness and the wisdom dimension. And it can be an issue for practitioners that one gets really strong with the wisdom and mindfulness dimension and not so strong with the heart. And the metta can really be a balancer, balancing factor there, can really help us to balance. And, you know, as in my own story, 
can help there be a greater integration so that we come out with a wise embodied heart so that we really have those factors of wisdom more and more of the kind heart more and more and it's embodied that's why we're stressing at different times the way that metta um, can be embodied more like from feeling the feeling the heart from bringing it into our activities and so forth <coughs> Maybe we'll talk later. There, there are ways in which the approach of metta, I think I mentioned this uh, two nights ago or two days ago, that the approach of metta is a little bit different than the approach of mindfulness and wisdom. But in the long run, they come together. That, that they, together there's the development, again, of the wise embodied heart. And increasingly, this helps us to touch our depths that that the with with metta takes us into the wisdom dimension. You know, there's a beautiful there's a beautiful story. Let me see if I have this here. Um, there's a beautiful story from the suttas of the Buddha visiting uh, three monks who were collectively called the Anarudas. Sounds to me like a little bit of a rock band. <laughs> they were called the Anarudas, and but there actually were th- uh, three monks. Anuruddha, Nandiya, and Kambiya, but they collectively called themselves the just one name, Anuruddha, Anuruddha. And the Buddha greeted them and said, how is it now that you Anuruddhas are living together on friendly terms and harmonious as milk and water blend, regarding one another with the eye of affection? Anuruddha spoke of having developed metta in terms of body, speech, and mind. And he said, Lord, we have diverse bodies but we actually only have one mind and heart. There was a sense in which there was that deep interconnection that had developed in them, such that they, <laughs> they took just one name. And he then said, this, this has been developed by the practice of metta. We no longer prefer our own happiness to that of others. So the, that the metta practice takes us into those deep teachings about interconnection, about not-self, about the limits of the separate self. And we also go into sort of the depths of the heart, the depths of caring. We become able to have that kindness there increasingly in all situations, including difficult ones. One of the teachings from the Buddha is that that the metta is connected with what's called the brightly shining factor of mind and heart and is taken to be there in all beings. Again, it's it's a passage pointing to the way that our our kindness and our goodness of heart gets covered over. And it's said that even in those who have done very um, unskillful actions, there's metta in that being and that we can actually touch into that. (coughs) Let me just finish with, let me see where my, let me finish, maybe I'll finish with a poem. Okay, this is a poem from uh, Mary Oliver. And I think this is pointing to meta practice and pointing to the ways that in meta practice we see beautiful qualities of ourselves, we see um, qualities that are not as beautiful, we see places where there's purification occurring. We see the whole what are sometimes called the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. We see the range of our experience. (coughs) And yet the direction is towards that shining of the metta energy. This is a poem called, When I Am Among the Trees. (coughs) When I am among the trees, (coughs) especially the willows and the honey locusts, Equally the beech, the oaks, (coughs) and the pines, 
They give off such hints of gladness. I would almost say that they save me and daily. I am so distant from the hope of myself in which I have goodness and discernment and never hurry through the world but walk slowly and bow often. Around me the trees stir in their leaves and call out, stay a while. The light flows from their branches and they call again. It's simple, they say. And you too have come into the world to do this, to go easy, to be filled with light and to shine. You too have come into the world to do this, to go easy, to be filled with light and to shine. <laughs>